Hello, this is Walter Latham, and I'm the host of the Walk Weekly Podcast. And we have our co-host, Michelle Sweeney McCombs, along with our backup co-host, Kina Parham. Uh, I'm very pleased today, and I think it's a very timely thing that we bring in our guest, uh, David with Depression, Donna Harrison. And Donna. Hi. How are you? How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me back. Ah, yes. I mean, I looked at uh, some of the documentation, and I was looking for Donna with Depression. Donna was doing a search, and the last time you were on the show was 2020, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yeah, during the pandemic. Yeah, I'm a good thing I got these, you know, I got storage. (laughs) 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 I'm telling you. Yes, I got a lot about you right here that we did back in 2020. Wow. All right, so I'm just going to just uh, maybe, I don't want to be redundant, but it won't be redundant to people since the episode came out in 2020, all right? But but the purpose of this show is to highlight depression and mental illness, especially during the holiday season, which I would like you to speak to. But just to give you a little bit about Donna, why don't you tell us about yourself, Donna? My name is Donna Hairston. I have a platform called Diva with Depression, which highlights the the problem and solutions with mental health illness in Black and Brown communities, and also follow my journey with mental illness. And I have a podcast called Breaking the Mask of Depression. Oh, yeah, I've listened to that. That's, it's a great <laughs> podcast, folks. And what was the name of that? I mean, I know it, but I want you to say it again. What, what is the name of that podcast? It's called Breaking the Mask of Depression. Oh, with, right. with depression, yes. Okay, and they can find that on all uh, uh, the, the streaming platforms uh, for okay. podcasts? Yes, and on Excellent. my website, yes. Okay, and what's the, what's the name of your website? I don't want to jump ahead, but... Uh, I think it's, it's a good diva with It's divawithdepression.com. Excellent. All right. Okay, Donna. So we want to talk about, you know, it's, it's very sad that some people, or a lot of people, I would say that, you know, they really, they're by themselves or they're elder people, elderly, or they're, you know, somewhat incapacitated or, or disabled. Mm-hmm. And they don't have anybody else with them. So this time of the year is very hard on them. It so is. you want to talk about that for me? Um, one of the things, actually, is, I think I'm doing three shows this week about the same subject. And I, I, I believe that one of the main reasons why it's so difficult this year, I mean, it's difficult every year. This year, I think we're in a silent depression, somebody said. Um, so things are expensive and you know, the job market is not as good as they say it is. So there's different factors. Um, and one of the things that I always say is it's okay not to be jolly during this time of year because it's a struggle for a lot of us. And I include myself in that because, you know, starting from really from November, you know, you have Thanksgiving and then you have Christmas, then you have New Year, and then you have to live up to the, the New Year resolutions and everybody's saying get better it's just a combination of things that, you know, will feed into people feeling worse during the holidays. No less we have seasonal affective depression, which sort of hits people uh, daylight saving times when it starts getting dark earlier. 
Oh, okay. There's a host, yeah, there's a host of issues um, with mental health during this, well, I want to say five-month period. So would you say that the Thanksgiving through New Year's, the holidays, uh, during that period, you would see a spike in the, in the number of suicides? I don't want to say that about suicides because I'm not sure. I, that's something that, you know, lasts throughout the year. And there are different things going on, you know, that contribute to that. So that's kind of, I, I want to say extreme, although it's reality, <laughs> you know, it's extreme, but it's not, it's not uncommon to see a spike in attempts and ideation and, you know, people going on to find their peace because they're, they're lonely or, you know, they're not active in the community or active in their family. So they don't leave the house much. Um, so, the, yeah, I, I will say that it could contribute to the high numbers as far as suicide is concerned. But I can tell you that with the mental illness part of it, it is very, very high during this peak season. Um, I uh, work on a hotline during the day. Okay. I do get a lot of calls, uh, people calling them for themselves and for their family members and friends, you know, just trying to find support, you know, not necessarily, you know, not going to get a psychiatrist or psychologist, just finding somewhere to have a support group online, you know, just so they have a way to stay in touch during this time. Yeah, because it's uh, so hard finding a therapist or a psychiatrist nowadays. It yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. <laughs> um, I, I actually, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I actually have a family member who realized, very close family member, who realized she was going through what seemed to be seasonal depression disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it would come in around sometimes August, sometimes September, uh, if she was yes. lucky, October. And then right. she would go through uh, a pretty deep depression. Um, slash anxiety uh, yes. was unable to be managed with natural remedies and you know medications because there's always uh, an extra side effect associated with that. But then Definitely. once the spring kicked in, uh, it would start to kind of simmer down, and you know the rest of the spring and the summer was fine. But um, it it went on for about 11 years, and then when COVID happened, uh, actually the year before COVID. Um, she was able, for some reason, it left. Are you guys able to mm -hmm. hear? Me? Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. There was, some, there was some background noise that just dropped out, so I didn't know if, if you guys lost me. So, you know, once COVID kicked in, actually what, what had happened was they attempted to move to Florida to look for the sun uh, back in 2018. Um, didn't, okay. really see any ch didn't really see any change, moved back to New York, but did notice that that fall, it didn't kick in. However, okay. unfortunately, that was the fall of 2019. So she was very excited, felt like she had her life back. But then COVID kicked in in March. And what we right. were told was anyone that was predisposed to depression or anxiety, uh, law enforcement said they had the highest case of people reporting family members having, you know, unfortunate challenges. Right. Um, and then for the next 16 months after that, it was, you know, up to the point where she was attempting to to, you know, to, to end her life. Wow. But, um, you know, prior to that, I didn't know much about it, you know, and at that point, because it was someone that was very close to me, I, you know, you're asking so many different people about it. 
And then you right. find out that there's so much going on in everyone's family, you know? That is something that we don't, well, seasonal affective disorder, I can tell you that that's just something that is always under the radar. Um, even for myself, I have severe depression, treatment-resistant depression. So my bout is all year long, every day, all day. But my girl, one of my best friends, she noticed that she would start to feel the same way around September. And then by the time October, the beginning of November came around, she was just miserable, you know, to the point where, you know, it, she was just incapacitated sometimes, you know, and she didn't know what to do about it. And she didn't know what was going on. And then when she finally figured it out, it I'm not going to say that it left, but she found ways to cope with it. Um, and, and there are ways to cope with seasonal affective disorder, even if it's just going out on your porch, standing outside your front door. Um, they have special daylight lamps um, now. Well, they've had them for a while. They're more affordable now. <laughs> um, so you can help with that part. But yeah, seasonal affective disorder, number one, is not something that we think about. And number two, people don't realize that it's all seasons. You know? Yeah, I never heard of seasonal uh, SDD, right? SDD, uh, yeah, I never heard of yeah. that before. Nope. It's something that it's always been out there, you know, and me, I love the winter, you know, because I'm an introvert. So <laughs> me not oh, going okay. outside is not a big deal for me. But the summertime, I'm miserable in the summertime because it's always light. There's always sun. There's always, I'm like a gremlin, you know, <laughs> with a bright light. So, so you're like a vampire. Things. You like to come out at night. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> So, you know, it is, it's different seasons and it's for different reasons. So I hope okay. that your, your family member. So Walter, I yes. first heard about seasonal affective disorder because mm -hmm. um, I have a family member that lived in Alaska for a long time. And oh, they were yeah. telling me about, you know, the days where it's dusk for a long time and yes. how yes. that's something that's very high in those types of areas where it's, it's not necessarily dark, but it, where it's really mm -hmm. dusk. Um, longer in the day, so it it affects oh, people's yes. moods. And yeah, they get six months of uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, go ahead, Walter. Yeah, they get uh, six months of, of of just night, no sun, and then then the reverse, you know, as the the Earth uh, tilts on this whatever you call it, the axis yes. towards the sun and away from the sun, the northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, all that kind of good stuff. And that's yeah. why the addiction, num the addiction numbers are so high in Alaska. Not that they're not high in other places, but that's one of the reasons why they have such a high addiction rate there because of depression. Yeah, and then it's, it's isolation up there. You know, I don't want to go into that so much, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. Is. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live anywhere there. there's not a golf course. <laughs> that's another show. That's another show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's why I didn't live in Tokyo or, or Dubai or something. Even though there were golf courses that were prohibitively expensive, you know, million dollar oh, wow. membership. And uh, hey, that wasn't for me as a working wow. guy. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get to say Jean's word. So, the seasonal affective disorder and Keena, and I, Keena, I want to say that if your family member is still struggling to look into one of those daylight lamps, they have them for your desktop now. It used to be that they just have the, the tall ones that you put in your living room, but they have portable ones that you can take with you with USB cords 
and different things like that. So maybe they can look into that. I don't know if there's five, there's five below in New York now, right? Yeah, we have that. And as a matter of fact, I did, I I did purchase that at at the time when I, when I tell you and Walter, I don't know how much you're going to have to cut out of this. (laughs) (laughs) No, please, please help me, help me. Don't let me go through the nightmare. I went through over the weekend, please. (laughs) Well, no, what I, what I'm saying is, uh, you know, I looked at this, I was, I was buying everything. Um, for her, uh, d- down to I, I'm not a person. I've never, I've never entertained any type of, type of drug in my life. But you know, I was at the the, uh, the what do you call it, the weed candy trucks. Mm-hmm. Going, hey, uh, my, uh, you know, I I know someone in my family who has this, and I need something for her. Just give me right. something for her. <laughs> and right. and people in the family were going, Tina, you you're actually going looking for. I was like, yes, yes, because I was at Most the point where it's like whatever helped, you know, I was looking exactly. for uh, clinical trials for her to get in because it was, yeah. you know, she was looking at killing herself and she was, she was hearing voices and, you know, she, she was staying strong for 18 months and it got to the point mm-hmm. where she had to, uh, she had to be put in, um, uh, in a, in an institution and literally less than a week, they found something. No, go ahead, Walt. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a list of questions here that I, that I want okay. to, uh, try to get through. Uh, I was going to ask you on a holistic level, <laughs> from a macro level, on a big big picture guy, you know, okay. uh, you know what constitutes mental illness and what are the symptoms? So I will, I can be definite about the depression part because that's what I have. Uh, the depression part is more than sadness. I say it's more than a bad hair day. It's more than my outfit doesn't look good today. I, I think that the the word gets overused sometimes. And, and I read a meme sometime where that says that um, only in in this world can a word be used to describe um, not having uh, nice shoes <laughs> and being in a state of illness. So if you're, if you're sad, deeply, deeply sad for more than, uh, you know, 10 hours a day or just, you know, going to work and coming home from work and it's lasting for weeks and months, then you're most likely struggling with depression. And not every level, depression is different levels. So you can have a mild form of depression. Some people do, or you can have an intense form of depression, which is what I have. And so I've had depression all of my life. At 16, I can tell you that it was a mix of teenage angst and a mix of my home life or, and a mix of, you know, in high school and, you know, you know how high school is. (laughs) Um, when I got to be 25, excuse me, I was having my first child and postpartum depression sort of jumpstarted my, my depression again. And then it just grew from there. I have a girlfriend who we were both actually trying to find relief at the same time. And she was able to go with the holistic method that worked for her. But my depression is so severe that vitamins and all of those things, they don't help. So, you know, what might work for one person might not work for another person. And so that's why I tell people that it is key to talk to your primary care physician. My primary care physician saved my life because she was the first one um, prior to my breakdown that started getting serious about what was going on with me. And I don't know if I didn't talk to her, I don't know where, if I would still be here right now. 
Um, so definitely, you know, if, if your anxiety is higher, you know, if you're isolating yourself, if you are thinking about, you know, doing something to yourself, harming yourself, harming other people, you know, those are the questions that they ask as soon as you go to the, you know, every time you go to the doctor, do you think about harming yourself or harming someone else? Do you have a plan? Because I don't think that people understand that having suicidal thoughts doesn't necessarily mean that you have a plan. I have suicidal thoughts every single day. I have no plans. You know, I, I don't have anything written out. I, I don't think about it. I'm just in the state of mind that I, it, I think I would be better off if I wasn't here. You know, right, now, when you say plan, Donna, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. When you say they, uh, you don't have, you didn't have a plan, or they don't have mm-hmm. a plan. Oh, but I mean that they don't, they, they don't have the intention of doing it, or they didn't plan it out. Like you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do this first, I'm gonna do that second, I'm gonna do this right. third. There's, you know, the, sometimes when people have a plan to to find peace, is what I call it. They may write a note. They may um, start getting their affairs in order. I've heard of cases where they even lay their outfit out that they're going, you know, they want to be found in, uh, calling their loved ones and saying goodbye, uh, sometimes saying goodbye outright and, and sometimes saying goodbye, you know, in low key type of way. So those, those people have decided that this is what I'm going to do on this day and this is how it's going to play out. Whereas other people, their thoughts can become so overwhelming, they're not even thinking that this is what they're going to participate in. It just got it just gets to the point where something triggers them and they decide that that's what they're going to do. Or you have other cases, <laughs> you know, where they're not thinking that that this is going to happen, that they are going to go find their peace. They're just trying to find a way to feel better. You know, let me take these pills because that's going to help me sleep and and get some peace of mind. Let me take these pills because it'll calm my anxiety and I can clean my house or I can go to the store. They're not thinking that there is going to be a more severe um, reaction to it. So it it's so many different ways to deal with suicide. Um, it's not just cut and dry. What are your thoughts okay. on, uh, I guess, I, 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 and I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but when mm-hmm. I think of different types of anxiety and depression, I think of mm-hmm. clinical, right? Maybe a mm-hmm. lack of balancement, certain chemicals in the brain or the body. And then right. I think of situational depression, like you said, you know, right. you know, whether it's, you know, you don't have a certain types of shoes or maybe you broke up with someone. And then, you know, there's right. also the anxiety tied to it. I think anxiety is, uh, and I don't want to say misused today, but you know, people are saying they have anxiety about every little thing and there's it's normal right. to have angst. Uh, but then there are those that, let's just say, uh, m- my son had a friend who committed suicide uh, maybe about eight years ago. He was 20, 21. Mm-hmm. That type of depression that's, I guess, maybe triggered because he had tried, this young man had tried mushrooms with some friends and those friends were fine, but it, okay. it changed something in his brain that right. caused him to be irregular after that. And then right. the doctors told him, you can never try this again, even though it works with your friends and they can still survive. You can't, whatever your chemical makeup is, your DNA, whatever have you, I don't know exactly what they said per se, but you can't toy with this. 
And then after right. that, they put him on some sort of mood stabilizers. And the last time I saw him, he was numb. And I was asking him, like, hey, what's going on? He's like, well, they have me on these mood stabilizers. Like, it's not worth it, blah, 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 blah. About a week and a half later, we find out that he hung himself from a ceiling fan. Wow. So when I look at it, there are, you know, there's, again, you know, the clinical um, depression and anxiety. They're situational, but then they're, I guess, I don't know what it's called when you take a drug and it forever alters you know, your mood? Well, <clears throat> clinical, definitely, that's that's one way to look at it. And situational, environmental, um, and, and it's genetics also. You know, that's something that we didn't want to hear either, that genetics plays a huge part in mental illness. You know, I, and I share the story all the time that when I had my first breakdown in the hospital, when they call my parents, to see if anybody else in my family lived with depression. My my mom said my grandfather did, and he's one of the strongest men ever. You know, so that's not something that we, you know, oh, well, the finances, you know, could have caused depression or raising, you know, a family causes depression. But how about the fact that depression, mental illness runs rampant on both sides of my family? And so just like you can pass down diabetes and heart disease, you can pass down mental illness. And so maybe your son's friend had um, an underlying mental illness or an underlying resistance to something that was passed down to him um, in, in, in conjunction with taking something that didn't agree with his body. Um, and sometimes, like you said, he had been given some medication to try to control it, the medication, the side effects from it, I can't even get into it. <laughs> I have two whole shows on it. The side effects of these drugs are horrible, are absolutely horrible. And I'm not going to say that's for all, but I've taken a lot of them <laughs> and they're horrible. And that could trigger somebody because who wants to be a zombie? You know, who wants to be dizzy? Who wants to be nauseous? Who wants to either overeat or undereat? And so that's a trigger too. So it's key to find care right away so that you're not thinking that, you know, if I drink enough, this will go away because it won't. If I take enough, um, we see uh, the, the story with Matthew Perry from Friends and they just um, determined that ketamine, his ketamine levels were very high. This is something that they're trying to get me to use now. And it's a major, you know, it's a big thing now, ketamine treatments. But Matthew Perry was also um, played with addiction for, for 30 years. And so the ketamine levels and the addiction and the, you know, the different things going on in his body, they didn't mix. He was in a great mood. He was fine in life. But that coupled with other side effects from his addiction made it difficult for him to you know, to stay with us. So there are so many things that we have to factor in and you have to, even um, when I was in ho in the hospital in 2018, so many people, it's funny that you mentioned the edibles. <laughs> um, I listened to the veterans in my group talking about how many of them use marijuana to help with their, with their side effects from their mental illness. And everybody was mortified, but how many people use it for glaucoma and for cancer patients? So why isn't that something that's 
use to, why, why are we shocked that that's something that people use to help them with their anxiety and their depression? But these are, we have to understand that this is, it's like living with, um, say, diabetes and you have to inject yourself every single day. You know wow. how painful that is? So imagine that yeah. you have this illness and it's ripping your brain apart. You know, and the medic there's no there's no definitive medicine for mental illness. You know, with diabetes, you can take metformin and you know relieve the symptoms. With mental illness, they don't have there's not it's not advanced enough where it can help a hundred percent. And so we're just looking to do anything to function to make it through a day. Yeah, they have to make it through an hour. I think there are also. D different clinical studies right now with different psychedelics. I think different types of mushrooms going on. I mean, yeah. I was looking up. I was looking up everything and anything, you know, to 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 see if you know any assistance could be provided. But it's a it's a very challenging um, experience for family members and loved ones. But it when is. you look at the person, right? I feel like <laughs> what family members are going through is nothing in comparison to the person going to through it um because what i'm told is it's liking unto you know the, the most personal experience that you have is with your own brain and with your own mind and when it's right. not behaving the way it's supposed to it's a betray it's a personal betrayal it is you know? it, so it is it's amazing i think it's amazing that you're doing this and and that's what we want that's all we want is we want somebody to listen to us and help us in in any type of way that they can. So it's amazing that you are going to these links to be an amazing caregiver, family member, friend, because that's so important to saving lives. And it's, 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 it's a challenge too, because I'm the person that they kind of pushed away from as well the most. Um, oh, and yeah. also, but I'm also one of the people that they asked me to help them end their life. life. And I said, and I was like, no, there's not something that I could do. And they you know, got mad at me and was like, you know, Kina, this is why I can never come to you for anything. Really? Wow. Really? Yeah. But I that's, that's a strange one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I, it's hard. You know. It is hard because we isolate. We don't talk to anybody. Um, Michelle's on now, my sister, for 40 years. And she knows that there are times, there are many times that I'm not going to answer the phone. Um, but I'll answer a text because that's easier for me. So how are you doing, sis? Just checking in and I, I'll reply. So you have to um, decide, number one, it's kind of hard not to take it personal, but you can't take it personal because it's not you. It's it's us, you know, that we are just just isolating or going through something or after talking so much you just feel like nobody's really hearing you or nobody really understands what you're going through because you don't understand what you're going through and you can't right. explain it to somebody else. So, mm -hmm. you know, don't take it personally and find out what their, what their, uh, I, I want to say their love language is, but I, my friends know that I will text all day, but I'm bad with talking on a telephone and th that's a whole nother <laughs> episode, but that's how yeah. I am. That's so, that's the opposite right. for my brother. Like I know Donna Patton, so you know right. if I get her on the phone, I try to take advantage of it because it's not awesome. <laughs> right. And it's not so, that I don't yeah. love them. Like right, she, right. This is, I know, she's my heart. Yeah, I know. I understand. Yeah, I understand. You know what she goes through, 
But my brother, on the other hand, he knows to answer because if he doesn't, we'll come and check on him. So he's not a texting person. So, but I could tell when he's going through something on the phone, from his voice and how he sounds, how his behavioral patterns. So I kind of know his patterns and when his time, his time frames are when he, when he gets most depressed. Right. So it's like, you know, you have to figure a person's pattern out. It's hard to do that with mental illness, but if you're around a person enough and you know them well enough to figure out when they're going through something, those are the times that you need to reach out to them. Right. You know, even more, you know, you reach out to them on a regular, but you know, the holiday times is the worst for people. It's the worst, you know? So I know my brother's patterns. And if I don't hear from him in a day or two, someone else will tell me, Oh, I spoke to Shorty. So I'm like, okay, he checked in with somebody, but you know, it's not easy dealing with mental illness. Um, It's something you can't control. You know, there's no fixing the brain at all. There's no fixing the brain. Right. And they can't get, they'll give you medicines to, you know, to tear the feelings, to tear the thoughts, but you can't fix it. There's no fixing that. There's no pinpointing somewhere in your head that a doctor can fix. Right. And you know that firsthand, Donna. Oh, yeah. That that's not something that they can do. If they try it, it's just going to make the situation worse. Yeah, but it can be managed, right, Donna? Managed, yeah. Um, yeah, because you know, to a certain extent, it's not it's not managed fully to a certain extent. Know? But then again, you know, you're getting addicted to these different medications because after a while, those medications wear off. Donna's can attest to that. Yeah, you keep experimenting with different things, and it's not fixing. It's not going to fix your brain. It's not going to change your thought patterns. You know, if anything, it's giving you other problems with it, right, Donna? You can attest to that too. Like you get oh, more yeah. issues dealing. With different medications because it gives you different um, side effects and stuff. So, what do you do? You know. And I've tried so many treatments. I've done ECT. I've done TMS. I've done EMDR. <laughs> yeah. I want you to. I want you to define those acronyms. There. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, for the audience, at least. <laughs> you lost me. Okay. So ECT is a electroconvulsive therapy. Um, shock treatment. That's what it is. If you, uh, the, the only comparison that we really have out there is Frankenstein, because that's what uh, the process was used for Frankenstein. You have, uh, okay. uh, you have electric shocks going through your brain. You have to be um, placed under anesthesia and currents are ripping through your head uh, for 15 minutes at a time. You could either do it right, left, or both. And, and I've done all. When you say right, left, that's the right lobe or or right, the right side of your brain, the left side of your brain, or both sides, bilateral. Okay. And uh, it's very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. The side effects are brutal, um, but it works for some people. For some people, it works for the rest of their life. Some people six months. Some people a year. But I'll take it. (laughs) You know, someone's gonna make me feel good for a year. Hey, I'm gonna do it. Uh, the second know? one is is being said is that there are different parts of your brain that trigger your emotions, that trigger anxiety, that trigger um, trauma. You know uh, your past, you know past experiences. So you know how some people uh, stuff their trauma, like me, and just you block it out. You have shoved it so far down that you don't even know it's there anymore. 
that's sort of what some of these treatments do. Um, they help you either block it or they help you push it to the forefront so you can uh, deal with it mm -hmm. and live a better life, supposedly. Um, transmet right. Transmagnetic TMS. I can't remember what TMS is, but it's another brain treatment. Uh, they put, it's like a two headphones, <laughs> so to speak, on your your lobes, your right and your left lobe, and they it's tapping. So they tap for 30 minutes on one side. Sometimes it's one side, the same two sides, um, and it taps for 30 minutes. And that is supposed to be the same thing. You're tapping into, hopefully, the part of the brain that is contributing to the depression or the anxiety, schizophrenia, different things like that. Um, so that's the transcranial magnetic stimulation? Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So that's the wow. That's what yeah. Yeah, okay. And they really, like, they're thinking they're pinpointing the part of the brain that right. controls that. And it's like, I don't understand how that, that, that method works. I will tell you that Michelle was very, there. very upset. <laughs> I was upset with her. I was really she upset. She was very upset. Yeah. Yeah. I was really and upset. And I videotaped it. That was the first time that I videotaped a process. Yeah. Um, and, and that's right. on my site also. But um, Michelle wasn't the only one. Everybody was very upset that I was doing this to my body again. But again, the flip side of it is, is that I'm just trying to find some peace of mind. You know, I'm not thinking about how invasive these treatments are. I'm just thinking about, I'm, I'm a Hail Mary trying to feel better. But those are the two most intense treatments. Um, you don't have to be under anesthesia with TMS. You're really just going into the, the doctor's office and you're in a chair and they hook you up to all the electrodes and you sit there for 30 minutes with the tapping. I watch TV, you know, right. um, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's not as invasive as the ECT. And the, the, real, the only real side effect that I had from the TMS was my anxiety and my nerves. It, it really did something to my nerves because I was, uh, mm. I want to say, sore to the touch after that, you know, especially on my hair. And Michelle will tell you she's done my hair all my yeah. life. <laughs> and, you right. know, you, I used to be able to get my hair done. I can't do it now. Um, and if I do do right. it, I have to take medication beforehand because of the nerve issue. So the end result from those two um, treatments, did they help you in any kind of way outside of giving you those other side effects? No, no. But, you know, the, the side, I have to say this all the time. I have severe treatment resistant depression, which means that nine out of 10 things is not going to work for me. And nothing has been, nothing has been created to cure mental illness. Right. And there is not even a, on the horizon something that's going to cure treatment-resistant depression. And so, like I said, there are so many people that ketamine has worked for them, medication has worked for them, talk therapy. It just depends on where you're at in your illness and how severe your illness is. Yeah, the ketamine. Yeah, I heard of that before. That, isn't that the yeah. date uh, uh, date rate drug or something like that? No. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's not. I, I don't want to say that. <laughs> but um, I can't really talk to what it is because I, okay. I haven't researched okay. it yet. But I do know that this is something that they have been trying to get me to do 
for two years because my depression is so resistant. But mm. some people wow. do go, and it's something that you have to you have to go into the clinic to get it done, unless mm. you know you have millions of dollars and you have home care. But you do have to go to the clinic to get it done, and a lot of insurances don't cover the treatment. Oh wow! How is it administered, the ketamine? Is, is sure it a pill or is it a uh, injection? They, they do have some um, medications that are similar to the ketamine treatment, but I, I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. So I'm, okay. I'm not going right. yeah. I will say this. Everything that you are thinking about doing to make yourself feel better, talk with your doctor. Even talk, you don't have to talk to a regular doctor. If you're going to talk therapy, talk to your therapist. I talk to my therapist about everything before mm. I start, during, you know, <laughs> and then your psychiatrist and your psychologist are a team. So my psychologist, my therapist knows that the psychiatrist had been recommending the ketamine and the EMDR therapy. So I won't say, we won't say recommend, but research, research these different types of treatment. Um, I, If I did say something, I would say that ECT is the most intense treatment. And that's something that you should research, 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 talk to your doctor and then talk to other patients that have had the treatment because that will um, contribute to you being well-versed in right. what these, these okay. treatments do. All right. You know, I, I, uh, you know, like with ADHD, uh, especially with kids, they're quick to, you know, to uh, diagnose ADHD and start getting, getting uh, giving the kids, uh, what is it, Ritalin and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think the same applies for depression? You know that you, they're quick to say, "Oh, you're depressed, and you do it." You should, and and, and is it drug company driven? The the level of prescriptions that are are written for depression. I think that everything is drug company, you know, pharmaceutical company driven, money driven. I should say, um, like they say, the money isn't in the cure. So so that's. You know, and that's just something that I, I truly believe. The second thing is, is when you when it comes to black and brown people, no one cares. I'm not gonna, and and that's general to say that no one cares. But what I'm saying is, they're not gonna go into why black and brown people suffer from mental illness more than say someone else. They're not looking into the fact that after 400 years of slavery, we have a different mindset than other people. We have 400 years plus years, we're still living in survival mode. We still have to deal with police brutality. You still have to turn on your TV and you see that your your communities are, are not being taken care of. Your education, um, the, the schools aren't, you know, up to par. Um, so it is easier to, if you, if you want to use children as an example, it's easier to just give them medication instead of trying to figure out, well, are they bored? Well, are they having trouble at home? Is there abuse, you know, physical, emotional, sexual in, in their um, world? They're not looking into that because there's no, there's no desire to help black and brown people. Um, and I it mean, doesn't change. It experiments, though. Exactly. And th- that's another thing, the fear. You know, we are right. scared of what the 
actual motive is to right. have us join trials and uh, try out medications. I am actually on uh, an advisory panel for a pharmaceutical company, and that's something that I stress to them all the time. If you're going into our communities, you have to understand that there is distrust there, there's resistance there, there's a lack of knowledge there, and you have to be prepared for battle. That doesn't deter them. I'm not trying to tell them not to do it. I'm trying to tell them, do your homework and understand where the fear and the distrust is coming from. Because if I say, you know, if in 1960, Black men couldn't say, I'm, I'm depressed, I have anxiety, because that's contributing to the view that they're weak. Right. A Black woman can't say, I can't do this anymore because they're supposed to be superwomen and they're looked at as weaklings if they say anxiety or depression is overwhelming. Those are things that the world doesn't do, you know? Yeah, I think the mindset on that is changing now, though, in the, in the Black community. I think people realize that they do need somebody to talk to. It's, it's changing slowly, uh, uh, you know, because I know a lot of people that are in denial, you know, mm-hmm. and their denial is eased after something tragic happens, unfortunately. Right. You know, um, right. I had a cousin that I kept saying, some, you know, he has mental illness, but the family, oh, that doesn't run in our family. It does run in the family. When you're in denial, you don't right. get that person any help the person died, and then, oh, he suffered from mental illness. But you ignored it his whole entire life. He could have been right. saved if you right. just acknowledged it or got him some help. It didn't have to be out in the open. It could have been privately. But we don't accept situations like that in families. We keep secrets. We keep it within ourselves, in our circles, instead of speaking to somebody about it and just acknowledging that there's a problem. And that's a huge factor in the Black community of not accepting it, you know, until it's too late. It's actually, you know, not just the Black community. It's in a lot of communities of color. It's experienced in the Latino community, the Indian community, also the, the you know, the, the Chinese, the Asian community, uh, because it's you're, you're expected to just keep going on. You don't have time to deal with it. You know, in addition to definitely what Michelle had mentioned insofar as someone being perceived as weak, but it's also, you know, you don't have time to deal with it. You're supposed to just keep pushing on. That's what people have done for generations. So that's mm-hmm. what you're going to do. You just keep pushing on because no one has time. And it's time getting worse, though. Do. It's getting worse when they don't, yep. when you keep pushing on, you, you push it to the side, you ignore it. Perfect example. I'm not sure. If, I think it was in Long Island, Walter. A gentleman, the wife couldn't deal with him anymore. She threw him out. The family, his aunt, allowed him to come into the home. Five people, three of them died. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stabbed everybody because he had mental illness. And the family wasn't listening to the wife. And she's saying, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, we got to help him. Like, they didn't get, oh, just come stay with us. It's okay. I didn't think he was there for a week and he stabbed everybody. Yeah. So it's like you're in denial, and then it gets, even like you said, Kina, it's not just in our community. You have a lot of white people where they have these mass murderers. They, they have assault rifles in their home, knowing that their child or their loved one has mental illness. Eventually, they're going to crack. Yeah. But if I- Either they're going to take their own lives, or they're going to take a few people with them. 
if I could add yeah. to it, though, um, aside from, let's just say, clinical and what have you, social media and the state of the news and me, the news cycles yes. has a lot to do, in my opinion, right? I'm oh, yeah, not definitely. a professional at all, but I'm definitely the kind of person, I'm like an ambivert, I, you know, I kind of stay in my own shell, I observe and, you know, but then again, I'm, I have that extrovert side and I like to watch mm. and I like to see how people respond to things. I'm also a person that really doesn't listen to certain aspects of the news because there's a negative aspect to it. And, you know, negative mm. negativity gets the clicks, it gets the sponsorship. And there's no way I'm going to start my day, you know, before, let's just say, going to work or starting your work day, listening to all the nonsense that has happened in the entire world today. When I know right. that there's so much good happening in the world as well, but that's not pushed. You have to go find that yeah. information. Yeah. But what I'm getting ready to get at is just one of the big things, too, is like notifications on your phone. Uh, like my niece right. is 21, right? You know, I have a daughter that's 23. A lot of, you know, I speak to a lot of young adults that's going through all types of perceived anxiety, right? You, you find out if it's real or if it's just situational. But People have these notifications, and every time you turn around, your phone is going, broop, 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 and you're thinking, it's like a jump. You're thinking there's something that you have to attend to, and there's nothing that you mm -hmm. have to attend to because it's just something from Facebook. It's something from some news cycle. It's nothing just, important. It's not, something um, negative. Yeah, it's not, it's not important at all. So I've told them that you, know, you should probably do something like go ahead and just turn off all notifications except for what you absolutely need. Like I turn off all my notifications with the exception of, you know, text messages, calendar, my Uber Eats <laughs> and my Amazon. Right. But it, it reduces the amount of things that you think you have to attend to. It's almost kind of like when you have a you have a report or something that's due and it mm -hmm. hasn't been done. That little angst you're down yeah, to the wire. Yeah. And it's. And so my niece went ahead and did it because she was trying to figure out like what was causing her so many issues with school and college and what have you. And she tested it out for a little while. It's just like when people test out, you know, kind of uh, closing down social media for a little while, the feeling mm -hmm. that they get, the feeling of relief, the feeling of the freedom. Now, it still has people in a hold, right? It still has people in a clutch because we're nosy. But it, it can reduce it. You know, turning off the notifications, turning off, you know, isolating yourself and really protecting yourself from certain types of information. Now, there's definitely information that we have to find out. And believe me, if there's something tragic going on, somebody will let you know. But you also have to kind of insulate yourself from the news as well, depending on the type of person that you are. Because I know that ne negativity in the news impacts me in a way that I feel like it doesn't impact people who are addicted to the news. I'm going to be honest. I haven't watched, I since 9-11 had happened, I didn't watch the news until the pandemic. Because there's so much negative stuff out there that it just. You know, guys are right. You're right. It disturbs your peace. The negativity of hearing something, some bad news on your way to work. A family got murdered overnight. You know, just something tragic. Hearing that, and it just changed your thought patterns for it your does. whole day. Like it messes up your yeah. whole pattern. So I try not to listen to negative stuff. I really stop going on Facebook unless I'm posting something or I'll go through and scroll real quick. I remove myself from alerts from people because I don't need to see all of that. So it's, it's how you control your patterns as well. If you want to see it, you know how you follow someone and, and it's, it's a page, it's a, a popular page and you follow that person, you're going to get every alert from them if you don't set your settings properly. So 
for people that are getting these alerts every day, all day long, it's because you're signing up for it and you want to have it. You want to know yeah. what's going on. I'm not. Uh, I don't need to know what's going on like that. I don't need my peace disturbed like that all the time, constantly. Unless it's well, you know, I have uh, implemented that. I implemented that a long time ago. I only got two alerts that I get. I get the ring doorbell alerts when anybody walking up to my door, and I get text alerts. I don't get anything else. I turn all those notifications off. You can go into your system, system, yeah. I mean, to your yeah. uh, systems, yeah. go in there and just, it's, it's, yeah, I, I never get an alert from Facebook or anything it's like that. narrative of your day, you know? Yeah. Um, and this, if you want a peace of mind and you control not just social media, but you control your life or who you allow in your space, who you allow to say negative stuff to you, who you allow to just control certain factors of your life. To me, a peace of mind is everything. Like, like Donna said, we text a lot. Like I just choose who I want to speak to, who I want to deal with. And if it's negative, I'm not dealing with it because it messes with your aura, you know, and, and your peace is all you have. Peace is all you have. You don't have a peace of mind. You know, you go crazy. I tell a lot of people that I come into contact with, especially young people also that your life doesn't have to be a circumstance. You know, of kind right. of tying back to, and it made me think about it, Michelle, when you were talking about the level of control that we all have in our lives. We have so right. much control over our life, but we don't realize it, but it's up to you to kind of take the, take, take the step to isolate right. yourself and determine what is important to, to you. Now, mm-hmm. there is what I would consider to be, um, I call it pseudo positive. <laughs> I just made it up, right? What I mean is there's this element of self-care that's out there that's telling everybody to cut people off. You know, if they're not helping you secure the bag, cut them off. If they're not doing such and such, cut them off. Um, when that's not true, not everyone is going to help you secure the bag. You know, everyone, you have people in your life, people provide different levels of balance in your life. You may have someone that couldn't help you figure out how to pay a bill to save their life. But for some reason, when you need calm, they're here to give you calm. Right, give you good advice. I'm not, I'm not, yes, I'm not with this element that's going on. That's like secure your peace by any means necessary and throw people out of your life if they don't, if they don't meet your current goal. I think there's something wrong with that as well. But people do have to realize, and it, it may be your friends, and your closest friends, it may be your family member, it may be your kids. That's causing a level of toxicity in your life that is unmanageable. Sometimes you may just have to take a step back. And I want to, okay. it's okay. I, I agree with you 100%. Done. I had to cut off some family members because it was just too toxic. Like, you have to know your, bound, your limits with people. You can't let them control your life with with the negativity you know i always say i go by this and i tell people it's funny because i don't take advice from a pe- a person that lives in a project about home ownership not to be negative but i i can't you can't give me advice if you don't own a home not to offend anybody but if you're overweight you can't give me weight loss advice if you don't run a company you can't give me business advice so i i, I look at people I'm, i hate to put them in that category but sometimes I have to. I'm like, how are you going to tell me about something when you don't you don't own this? You know, you don't have it. Like you can't give advice about something you have no knowledge about. So absolutely, absolutely, it becomes a negative vibe all the time with a negative person speaking on things that they know nothing about. So that could be depressing listening to that all the time with with people that are negative as well. If if you're trying, if you have an issue. 
you have mental illness or you have depression, whatever you have, or it could be any situation outside of mental illness, you can't allow people to come in that circle and bring you down even more. That's just, I, I, I can't have that in my life. It's like, I don't, I don't need that energy. If you're not helping me in a positive aspect, it doesn't have to be financially or helping me grow or anything. It's just on a general basis, if you're not giving positive vibes to a person and you're making their situation worse, you have to let go of those people. Yeah. I do, I, do want to, I do want to circle back. I want to get back to Donna. And uh, Donna, I got a question for you. Okay. I made a statement uh, during our Friday Night Live uh, this past week. And I believe, and I think uh, if you listen to it, you, you, you'll hear me say, ask this question or make the statement that black people are the walking wounded when it comes to mental illness. We can go through and look back at our lives, what we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, when we go to work, when you look at, I think one thing that caught my eye when I first started working at all the offices, all the, the offices, the window, the corner offices, all of them were white people. There were no blacks in the corner offices. So I think what I'm trying to say is that every day of our lives, every hour of the day, we feel racism. And I translate racism to me can make you have PTSD. So I think that the majority of black people in this country are walking around with PTSD if they had a certain age. Yeah. And say from millennials on up to, to baby boomers. Yeah. I mean, Donna experienced yes. it on the job along with my brother. My right. brother worked with her uh, company. They were racist, you know, right. and they were blatantly racist. Like, they didn't hide it. No. They didn't hide it. And I actually had growth in there. Yeah. yeah. I actually had my breakdown at work in my right. office and my cubicle yeah, brother too. Yeah. Um, and had to be taken out. Um, so, mm -hmm. I, yes, that is one of the things that I highlight on my platform. That is one of the things that started me blogging about this is because we are not getting the care that we need. We're not getting the ear that we need. We're not getting the doctors that we need mm -hmm. because there is racism um, underlying in the medical community. Um, how many people have you heard uh, about? Listen, I just went through it a couple of months ago and I had to write a doctor up and report her because she said um, they didn't mind treating, they didn't mind me coming in or something like that because my pain levels were so high and they didn't understand why I was offended by that. And I told her, listen, you cannot tell a black woman that her talk about her pain levels because in the, in, in hundreds of years ago, and even now we did not get the proper anesthesia. They were taking our babies out of our bodies with no anesthesia and then expected us to get up the next morning and take care of their kids because they said our pain levels were so high. Right. Our pain levels are not high. It's right. just that we become resist, not resistant, but we've, we've learned to push down the pain, push down mm -hmm. the trauma. If I know that if I go to the doctor and I constantly and say that I'm in pain, they can write that I'm looking for 
um, medication. Yeah, drugs. But I want yeah. oxycodone yeah. because I want to feed my addiction, when that has nothing to do wow. with it. But if you have the wrong doctor, that's what they're gonna. That's what they're gonna write. You know. So we have to. I um, a couple of months ago, I had to have a procedure, and before the procedure, I had to meet with the psychologist in that office. And when she came on, she was a black woman. And she's talking to me. And the whole time she's talking to me, I'm writing. I said, I have to get this lady's name so I could put her on my website <laughs> as a resource because a black female therapist is a unicorn. And I finally said it out loud to her. And she said, I can tell you at least 10 times a day, I get that same question. 10 times a day. I have a Latina therapist. It took me six months to find her, maybe more. And I had to go to four different abusive therapists here before I found her. So wow. we have, we are walking wounded. I like that, Walter, because we are walking around broken and nobody cares to fix us. And it's not just the, the outside world that doesn't care to fix us. Some of us don't care to fix us. Mm-hmm. We don't want to fix ourselves because like Michelle said, you know, our family members are stuffing it or they, they don't want to talk about it. But how about they don't want to talk about it because they caused it? Right. You know, then you that's have to take the, responsibility the for right. your role in me being broken. Mm-hmm. So Walter, all I can say, and this is something that I will preach until I'm gone, is that we have to get loud about what's going on. I have women that came up to me that didn't even know what a symptom of depression was until I started talking about it. I have family members that would not say anything to me or anything to anyone about how they were feeling until I started my platform. And then I go to a family function and there are six people surrounding me because Mm. they want to number one, say thank you that I'm saying something. And then number two, well, I'm going through this. Do you think that, where can I get resources for this? I have people in my inbox all day long. How can I find resources because this person is feeling this way. I'm feeling this way. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. And so until these things are addressed, we are, we are going to stay, you know, walking around wounded and with PTSD, um, ADHD. Yeah. yeah. They have to let go of the embarrassment of it too. And it's embarrassing. It is. It it is. It's embarrassing. I am embarrassed every day. Every time I talk to somebody, I'm embarrassed now because millions of people are going to know that there's something missing in me. But Mm. the the flip side of it is, is that I know by speaking about what I'm going through, my daughters know that they can speak out, that they can go get the help Mm. that they need. Um, I know that, you know, a coworker or somebody else will think about what I'm saying and research it and find the proper care. So uh, embarrassed, yes, but grateful. that That's weird to say, but I'm grateful that I have this platform because it helps me. It helps me to interact with other people and it helps me to know that other people are getting help. Okay. And I think, okay. that, um, I think that that's important. All right. I, I got one question I want to ask you before we go. Why is there such a shortage of providers, mental health providers? You can't, you can't find them. 
it's not a shortage of mental health providers. It's a shortage of culturally competent mental health providers. Because when I started my platform, I was living in New Jersey and I can go everywhere to find a Indian doctor. I can go anywhere to find an Asian doctor. I can go anywhere to find a Caucasian doctor, but I couldn't find black doctors. That is the problem with us, with our communities, um, black and brown communities. And, and there, like, like Kina said, there are other um, races and cultures that are struggling, but I can guarantee you that if you put the number of our doctors up against other numbers of doctors, we're lacking because it's just recently that blacks are going to school to be psychologists and psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Those are fields that we never, everybody wants to be a pediatrician or a ER doctor or something like that. They weren't thinking about the mental health profession. Right. So now you are totally correct. Yeah. Because sorry to cut you off. My niece has mental illness. She took up, she's taken up and she's going back for her master's because she wants to learn. She wants to be able to help people like herself. She wants to learn more about this illness that no one can help her with, you know? Right. So instead of struggling with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't something that we connected with. I don't think it's something that African-Americans connected with as a need, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you want to make money doing something that's a need. As you had mentioned, you know, we have pediatricians and other health professionals that Mm -hmm. everyone connects with and we understand that's needed as a part of society. But because we were raised to not recognize mental health issues, it was not something that was ever even really perceived as something that, you know, I'm going to go ahead and become a, you know, a psychologist or, you know, um, or a therapist for, for white people. And and it's not seen discriminatory, but it's just not something that I think that people of color that cross their mind because you knew you weren't going to be a, you know, Addressing mental health in the community was not something that was done. So addressing right. mental health for Caucasians was not something you were exactly signing up for as your right. source of income. Right. Exactly. When I was in college, we had, you know, all these different majors you can do and this and that. I was a music major before I became a business major. But at the HBCU that I went to, you know, people that majored in psychology, we looked down on because it wasn't we didn't academic, you know, rigor associated with psychology, all right? And even African-American history, we didn't even look at it. Black American history, that's what, no, man, you're just writing. That's all you're doing, man. What you major in, in business or science or math or something? But that has changed. I agree with what That mindset yeah. has changed. Yeah, I, I, that's true. And I think now, because we do have this social media platform and you have cyberbullying, you know, and you have more people discussing it. Yeah. So I think this generation has more of a balance with getting help than we did growing up. So I'm getting some scratching. I'm sorry. Sorry, Michelle. I'm getting some background noise. Some wanna, scratching um, sound. I want to, I know we have to go, so I want to bring it back to what you, Walter, you asked me to talk about and tie it into what you guys were saying. I did an episode last week with a journalist and she um, started a foundation of uh, an organization based on mindful journalism, which means that her platform sort of um, sifts out the the journalism that the toxic journalism, the clickbait, and all of that. And sh- and her platform starts to explain how we can 
do better with what we take in so it's not becoming toxic to our brains and our minds and our souls. But you guys were saying how you can choose what you filter in, you can choose what you watch, you can choose, you know, different things on social media. And you have to remember that all of us don't have that gene, I say. We don't have that brain to be able to uh, go through and figure out notifications and go through and figure out how to do this and that. You also have to understand that you have people that are that don't leave their houses and social media is their only form of communication. And if they stop that form of communication, that could lead to um, tragic results. Right. And so when you're talking to people about doing these things, you have to understand that it's it's a big bubble. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. a, a double edged sword, so to speak. I know right. that if I turn off Facebook, then I won't know what Michelle is doing you know, today, yeah. I won't know yeah. what my cousins in, um, in different states are doing because I don't have that interaction with them. But right. coming back to what you, what you talked about earlier, Walter, is that when I said that you don't have to be jolly during this season, you don't have to try to live up to the person online that has the perfect Christmas tree or is ice skating and, and going to New York to look at the Rockefeller Center tree and different things like that. That's, that's, you don't have to live up to that. You have to do what will make yourself feel better. Me putting up my tree and having the lights on is it calms me because I have something to look at. That's peaceful. Um, grief is a major part of the holidays, I mean, grief is an everyday thing, all day thing. But when you get down to the holidays, you're thinking about the fact that your loved one is not here. I mean, it doesn't matter if it was last week. I lost someone five years ago and my grief is debilitating right now. And it's been five years. It never goes away. Grief never goes away. But there are ways that you can try to um, calm the storm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I am still close to her family. So that helps me to um, stay in touch with who she was. Um, this week, Michelle and I both experienced tragedies around this time. And that was what, Michelle, 20-something years ago. But it still pierces my heart every year. So instead of, you know, I may get down for an hour because my grandfather's not here, but then I'll look at a picture of him playing Santa Claus one year, you know, and that will, yeah. up. you know, empty nest. Um, if you know me, you know that my children are my whole heart and soul, and they're both in different states. They're not here with me, crying every single day for Thanksgiving because I didn't have them here with me. Um, crying <laughs> until they get here on Wednesday and Friday, maybe. Um, so, you have to understand that people are going through different things and the connection to the outside world may help them feel better about those things. I can go online and I can see my baby girl doing something at school. You know, that just makes me so proud, even though she calls me every day, but I can go online and I can, you know, feel proud about what she's doing. I can go online and see uh, what my oldest daughter is doing at her job or in school. Um, I can go online and I can see Michelle's son all over the world, you know, a musician all over the world. Those are things that warm my heart and it, it helps. Even if I'm crying all day, I can not cry for half an hour because I'm watching Justin, yeah. you know, playing yeah. drums in Sweden somewhere. Yeah. Those are things that 
we can we can try to do. You don't have to take in the news because I don't watch the news, but that's a whole nother show. Watch a Hallmark movie, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, you know, look, try to find something festive to do. Try right. to find something. Um, my sister loved Christmas. So mm-hmm. I make sure that she loved butterflies, purple and purple. So I make sure that there's a butterfly on my tree every year. I make sure <laughs> there's a butterfly hanging somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, so nice. like little yeah. things like yeah. that, you mm-hmm. know, because it makes you feel better and it's comforting to know that they're with you in some form. Right. So, okay. you know, it's hard. I'm not going to say that it's not hard. It's the hardest thing living like this, but we have to fight through it. Um, to, to live, to survive, um, because there are some days, you know, today might be a bad day for me, but tomorrow morning, something may happen that will change my life. And if I um, decided to go find my peace today, I won't get to experience joy tomorrow. Now, so, you took the words out of my mouth right there, because I always be sad. I don't care how bad it is. Okay. Next week, it could be, it could be much different. The and thing is, to try to get through strength. that benefit. Right. Some of us don't have the strength to push through, and we have to understand that some people just don't have the strength to think about next week. You know, I just well, know that in, in an hour, I may order Chinese food, and it'll be the best Chinese food that I'll have. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's something that I'm going to look forward to. Um, so you have well, to come at it from all angles. Well, I'm sorry. We told by one of the professionals is that oftentimes when people are going through the um the thought process to to end their life they don't really want to it's that they can't find a solution so they're actually kind of they're they're employing a long-term solution for what could be considered a shorter term impact and i guess shorter term is really different depending on how long your episodes last right you know because if it's something that happens every day all day for someone it's a long-term you know, exactly. Versus someone who kind of just goes through bouts and bouts of it. But the concern is more so, you know, you one of the things you mentioned um, is that, you know, you feel embarrassed. And I definitely, you know, you know, it's like I almost beg of you to say, to understand that this is your challenge, but everyone in life has a challenge. There is no one in life that goes without a challenge. And this happens to be yours and the platform that you're using to be able to connect with people is definitely something that it's more so to be proud of, you know, because you didn't ask for this. You know, even when you look at people who are unfortunately psychopaths and sociopaths, they didn't ask for this. But you can't just exactly turn them loose on the world, right? So everyone right. has to figure out how to manage their current situation. But the fact that you're you're not keeping this as a very personal situation when you very well could, you're sharing it with the world. And you're connecting it with other people who need it so much. And even though, let's just say, I myself at my current time, I say current because you never know what happens, don't experience it. But when I started to seek information, I needed people like you and others who were willing to share their story so that it could help me kind of do research to help my family members. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's not a conspiracy theory, but I've been saying this for the last couple of years. But all this violence, this unusual, you know, these unusual things that are going on, mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with COVID. I think this it's a long-term COVID that these people have, based on what I'm seeing, because the th- things I see out there now, I've never seen in my life. And I've been out here a long time, you know that. 
So I think it's COVID related. I mean, it's I got no proof. You know, there's no. Have, I don't think there's been some empirical studies. I'm sure there have been, but they haven't been released to the public. But I think a lot of this violence has to do with people with long term COVID. All right. I'll tell you this. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. go ahead. I will say this, and I don't think you should cut it out. But anyway, <laughs> um, number one, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, earlier this year. And when you, there, what my doctor told me is that long COVID is chronic fatigue syndrome. They just haven't discovered it yet. So there are physical, um, the, the exhaustion, the complete exhaustion, the body pain and different things like that, that people are still experiencing from having COVID. And I just had COVID in October of last year. Wow. Um, and it triggered the chronic fatigue. Um, so people are struggling that way. And so when it comes to pain, and it, and it ties in again, if you have body pain, constant, constant body pain, and nothing is helping, you're going to do whatever it takes to make it feel better. The second thing is, you think about it, for two years, we were locked down. We were in the house. That means that kids did not go to school. Kids did not see their friends. And there are kids that were in their formative years, locked up for two years. And now they're out and they have no socialization skills. And you expect them to go to school and sit still. You expect them to go to school and interact with adults and interact with other children and do it properly when for two years they were locked away in a cage, so to speak, because some people were in, well, most of us were in uncomfortable situations after six months, but you have the socialization problem. And so, yes, there are side effects from COVID. There, side, there could be side effects from um, the vaccines. There can be side effects from some of the medications that we were given to cure some of the, the symptoms. So it's not a conspiracy theory. I think that there are so many things that are going to come out um, in the future about what we actually experience and what are the side effects, the long-term side effects of COVID that we're not paying attention to now. And I would definitely say COVID as an experience, not only COVID as a as a um, as a as a virus that someone may right. have contracted. Because right. when you think about it, right, people, I remember, you know, uh, I mean, you know, you did not know what was safe to touch. Exactly. You know what I mean? You did not know if you were going to touch a door handle and you were going to contract COVID and give it to the rest of your family, and who was going to start dropping off. Dying. Exactly. People exactly. have, you know, family members with asthma and respiratory issues or COPD mm -hmm. or any other slight health issue. And people were, there was a fear that was instituted. Like, I don't even like hearing the word precedence anymore <laughs> because of the way the word, I'm sorry, unprecedented. Yeah. I don't even like that word anymore in just regular English language because there was a fear that was instilled in people saying this is an unprecedented pandemic. This is an unprecedented time. You must do this. You must do that. And there was a fear that was instilled and there's PTSD associated with that. And you yeah. see that in the workforce. You know, when I tell yeah. my mother about certain things that I experienced in the workforce, she's like, you know, this has got to be something post COVID because, and even in the medical fields, um, things that people experience, right. just, there's a, there's a, there's a glitch. There's something going on with people, you know, and I think that, that people period. forget that not only were our family members and friends passing away, but your doctors and your nurses and your hospital administration was passing away. Like how many doctors did we and nurses did we lose to COVID 
And so now we don't have replacements for that. And that means that the medical system is overburdened. It is, it, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. So it's not just medical racism. It's not just medical neglect. It's also the lack of care available because we lost so many healthcare professionals during COVID. That did not to pass. Add, did not go back to work. Exactly. Exactly. They're afraid to go yeah. back. Yeah. And to yeah. add to that, the economical impact, because, you know, at least during the, now I don't want to say at least as if, as if it's acceptable because it's never acceptable. During the recession of 2008 through 2010, we kind of knew what happened. And there were people at fault, even though you can never really hold anyone to it. But during COVID, people's jobs were snatched through no fault of their own. Exactly. Right? You have people that were looking to retire, you know, that could not retire, right? You know, you've been waiting to retire for years. And now you're, everyone's source of, not everyone, but a lot of people, their source of income was snatched. But your bills keep piling. Right. right now, they told the government told people, hey, if you don't have a job, you can fill out this affidavit and you don't have to pay your landlord, but you will have to pay your landlord one day. So let's just imagine even if your rent was only a thousand dollars a month and you were out of a job for 18 months, where are you going to get eighteen thousand dollars from? Is exactly. your job even still there? So there's a lot of stress associated with that behavior. And then you have the younger generation coming out into the workforce, looking at it like is this even, is it even worth it? And then now we live in a very, um, I don't know what the word is, but you know, you have a lot of top companies that are very quick to lay people off, right? Of course, it's, you know, on behalf of the shareholders when they need the numbers to look right at the end of the year. But the younger generation that's entering the workforce is saying, wait a minute, so what's the point of all of this if I could do what's needed and they can still just lay me off through no fault of my own. The country can allow a virus to come in. Is any of this worth it? So there's so many different angles that this is being looked at. And none of it tells me. Yeah, and the stress of them trying to force people back to work is also um, starting to break down on people because if you figured it out how for me to work at home, why do I need to come into the office, number one? And number two, if you're taking public transportation, you have the homeless situation now. They're living on the subway. So not only do you have to deal with that, watching them, sitting in piss, taking a risk, getting bed bugs. It's just a mental strain on folks that have that are wanting to, uh, the boss is wanting them to come back in full time. They are stressed out just thinking that they're going to get sick, they're going to catch something, something's going to happen. So if I figured out how to work at home, why do I need to come in? So a lot of people are losing their jobs too. And then again, you, like you say, you mentioned this generation, they've, they're, they've grown, so to speak, on being home, you know, having access to social media. So I'm going to start an online business. What you, why do I have to go outside to an office? But the flip side of that is, is that here your socialization skills are, su- are suffering again. So... It's all around. I was reading one article, and it was saying a lot of the, uh, especially uh, black graduates, you know, from the uh, graduate level and the bachelor level, or the undergrad level, they have their degrees. They're not going right to places like Goldman Sachs or banks or finance or this and that. They're going into their own thing, yeah. which is good. That's good, right? I mean, you want to control your destiny. Who's the best to control your destiny? You. Right. 
All right. So I advocate, you know, strongly that we should get a job for cash flow purposes only until you can find what you really love and then open your business, right. start your business. Find your niche. Yes. Mm-hmm. Find it. That's it. You have to. All right. Michelle, so Michelle, Michelle, I'm going to let you close. Michelle is my favorite entrepreneur in the world. <laughs> yeah, for a yeah. long time but she she stood on faith and she stood on gumption and i respect that so much i i love watching her because she doesn't stop growing and that's what we have to do we have to instill that in our children don't stop don't give in just keep going and all right but i've been okay. knowing I've, been, I've known michelle maybe 30 years that's the right. part i said i'm a couple mm-hmm. a little bit more than 30 years actually all right. Yes. I mean, we, we, we used to work together and, you know, every day, you know, and I know the value of Michelle is very, she's a brilliant person. She's a hardworking person. She's one of the hardest working people. And you heard me say this many times that I know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, that's why, I mean, hey, look up our co-host, I mean, Michelle, I was so happy, mm-hmm. to, you know, that she could join the Wall Weaker because I know that, you know, she had that work ethic. Definitely. All right. And, you know, I respect her tremendously for that. All right, and then we're friends too. All right, a lot of times we're thinking the same thing, and you know, like last night you sent me something, a message, and we—I was already thinking about it. I just didn't get to it yet. She beat me to it. But we think a lot, or like we, we, you know, that that we just, which is amazing. So with that said, Michelle, I'm gonna let you close it out. Thank you for joining the World Weekly. Our host Walter Latham, senior co-host Michelle Sweeney-Combs, co-panel host is Tina. Karen, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, and Diva with Depression, our guest today, speaking on mental illness. We thank you all for joining us. Follow us at theworldweekly.com, social media, Facebook, and Instagram at The World Weekly. You can find all our previous episodes at theworldweekly.com. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday.